Hello, and welcome to this podcast produced by the Ursinus Parley Center for Science and the Common Good. My name is Alexa Beecham. And my name is Ben Alwine. Today we are joined by Dr. Ian Simon, a policy analyst at the Science and Technology Policy Institute, a nonprofit in Washington which advises the National Science Foundation, the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy, and other offices within the federal government. Dr. Simon is trained as a microbiologist at Yale University and has served as the Science and Health Advisor for Nevada Senator Harry Reid. Dr. Simon, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So uh, getting right in here, in the midst of your microbiology graduate program, you realized that you were becoming far more invested in politics and science policy. Can you describe your background as a scientist up until this point, and can you share what caused the shift, this shift in interest? So early on in my grade school, I, I knew I always had an interest in science. Um, and then when I was about 14 or 15, I became somewhat obsessed with viruses. Uh, and specifically retroviruses. I was at a like a Saturday morning extracurricular sort of science uh, event. They have it every every week, and and it was at a laboratory at the Medical College of Virginia. And this particular day, some graduate students came in to help us with one of their with, with our lab. We were doing we were like gram staining bacteria, which is a pretty fundamental um, experiment that every microbiologist sort of does in their first college course. And through one of the, the breaks we had, the graduate students started describing their own research and how they work with retroviruses. And uh, I sort of just said, so what, what is that? I don't even know what that is. And they started describing how HIV and other retroviruses hijack your, your body's own genome and evades uh, the immune system, and it's essentially like a super spy, but for the body. And for me, hearing that, I was just totally engrossed. And uh, I, I said, okay, that's what I want to do. I want to be a virologist. I want to study viruses. I want to figure out what makes them tick and, um, and why they cause disease and how you can stop that from happening. So from that point till about 10 years later, I was in the laboratory. I was you know, finding different science lab like science fellowships in the summer and I was I was uh, when I went to college I worked part-time in a science lab and during the summers I found different fellowships allowed me to go do research at other universities and uh, I was very much focused on being a virologist and then I was in graduate school and I was about halfway through and something just kind of didn't feel right and I was seeing what, what the career path was for people in virology. Not just, okay, you get to do cool science in your lab, but what does it actually look like when you start thinking about a career and, and the kinds of um, challenges and hoops you have to, to kind of to take on. And it was then that I started to, to think about how much do I really love the actual doing of science. I know I love science, but Maybe the actual day-to-day, you know, pipetting small amounts of liquid from one tube to another was not quite where my, where my heart was at. And, uh, but I didn't know where my heart was at. I just knew it probably wasn't there. And then serendipitously, I started getting into very small, minute aspects of policy and became interested in that. And that's sort of where my, the idea of where my career track started to diverge. 
And when you decided to pursue a path that was more politically focused, did you encounter any obstacles in sort of transitioning away from pipetting small amounts of liquid? And how did you work around sort of reforming your goals? So, yeah, so I think the first challenge and the fundamental challenge was I had no idea what a career that involved policy was mm -hmm. or what it would look like. I did not have a mentor that I could look to and say, ah, I want to do what they do. Or I didn't know of, of someone like that. And I didn't, I didn't know what it would take to even start to look for, I mean, it was a, a, a very, very like wide, ignorant view of whatever that is. Uh, so that was the big first fundamental challenge. And then I just said, well, if I don't know anything about it, let me just try anything I can to learn about it. And along that way, then I encountered a, a, a few different challenges. One of them was that my graduate school advisor, while not discouraging, also was not very interested in helping me pursue it, right? So it's something that I think in grad school, a lot of graduate students look to their principal investigators, their PIs, as a, a career mentor, which a lot are if you are going to pursue that particular career in microbiology research, for instance. But anything out of it, I don't think one can assume that that same person will then provide other types of career advice. So that was the first one, is, is, is uh, the first challenge was to learn to stand on my own, learn to, to just get out there and, and try and fail at different things. And when I left graduate school, I, I earned my PhD, and I, I entered into this scholarship called the Henry Luce Scholarship that supported me and allowed me to uh, live and work in Asia and then also pursue uh, my career interests. And I wasn't the only one. There were about 18 of us in this cohort. Um, and it provides that same support, but you have to come up with your own career interests, uh, and they will help you find a job placement. So I wound up in South Korea, and I was working uh, as a visiting scholar at a science policy think tank in Seoul, South Korea. And I still remember the first day I walk in, and I meet my mentor, and I thought, okay, this person will tell me what they do, will tell me what the institute does, and will help me figure this all out. But the first thing he says, well, okay, so welcome. What are you going to do for the year? Uh, <laughs> 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 and so for me, it was, it was, uh, it, that was a big challenge. Of, I, I have no idea what this field is that I've decided I'm going to pursue, uh, really. I, I have no, very little educational background in it. I just have an intense interest and so then it was you know I tried all I could to just become a sponge and soak everything up but that was that was one interesting challenge of just kind of being thrown in the deep end and someone saying all right now swim so when you first started investing yourself in science policy you explained that you had never been busier but you had also never been so satisfied by your work so what was it about this experience of working with policy that was so rewarding how did that connect to the common good in the way that your bench work did not I mean when I when I was working in, in, or starting to get into policy when I was in graduate school, I was um, coming out of that sort of like halfway through my graduate school funk, and I needed uh, something to occupy my mind that was not just pipetting small amounts of liquid. So I started just, just taking on lots of different challenges, 
I joined student government, and it started with uh, just because they had free beer and pizza on Wednesdays. And then, and then, and then, after I went to all these meetings, I was like, "Oh, these guys are actually working to try to improve the lives of other students on campus." And that was really cool. And I wanted to, you know, be in a room where everyone's really concerned about how the humanities students are doing this or how the science students are doing that, and who's, you know, is is it is everything? Are all the policies fair and equitable in the university? And so, being part of that conversation was really great. And I, I wanted w what I thought was someone to sort of take up the mantle of that work and keep going. So I tried to convince different friends of mine to um, run for student council president. And, you know, it's a volunteer, non-paid, time-intensive gig. So I got lots of people who are like, no, nah, I don't think so. And I would say, well, well no, just you be president and I'll, like, help you out from, like, behind the scenes. <laughs> And they're like, no, nah, that sounds like a lot of work. And I was like, no, 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 like I'll, I'll do, I'll do a lot of the work. You, you just be right. And they're like, why don't you just do it? So that's what I did. So I, I became uh, the president of the, of the Graduate Student Association, which kind of doubled my, my workload. So I had uh, uh, all this time I was spending in lab trying to write my dissertation, and then I was also doing all of this student government work. And for me, it was, it was one of those things where if I had a lot of time on my hands to focus on something I really wasn't that into, like pipetting small amounts of liquid, it's not nearly as um, rewarding uh, for me as if I have very little time, but, you know, very little free time, but a lot of free time is spent on something I love and something that I love in theory but don't love in practice, but at least, you know, at least my life is is full and and uh, and I guess that's why I felt like it kind of made made it content. So since then you've transitioned into work as a policy analyst and within the broad scope of science policy there are of course many different fields that you could work in as an advisor or an analyst. So can you describe what types of policy you're most interested or experienced in and what responsibilities maybe you have specifically in your position? There's actually, uh, I, I guess, um, I'll, I'll describe it by saying this, that, uh, and I, I've held many different roles as a science policy analyst or advisor, and some of them are very general, and some of them are very topic specific. I, I've done both. When, when I worked in the, in the U.S. Senate, uh, it was very general, and my role was to field any kinds of questions, issues, challenges that had anything remotely to do with science, not that it was any particular science. So although my background is in microbiology and therefore loosely health sciences and loosely science, I, I, I found myself being asked to, to help advise the senator on a company that wanted to s open up a, a, a manufacturing plant for muon detectors. So I had to figure out what, uh, figure out what a muon was figure out what a muon detector was, uh, understand that industrial manufacturing of muon detectors and how successful they may or may not be uh, in the state of Nevada with tax subsidies. And, and so it was, it was all of that put together. So I had to cover a wide range uh, in, in that role and in other roles can uh, cover a wide range of, of issues. 
But then there were some roles, like for instance what I do now, about half of my work is concerned with infectious disease preparedness. So my background as a virologist uh, very much you know, plays uh, a central focus in, in, in that kind of work, um, in that I understand infectious disease. Um, I, in some ways, I've come to understand a little bit about public health and, and what it takes to prepare the public, prepare the country through different policies to, to deal with infectious disease outbreaks. So, so those are some of the things that, that I deal with. You mentioned that you worked with Harry Reid's office because he personally requested there was a scientist on his staff. Why is this requirement not common? Why is this perspective not as valued? And how, if it were valued, would this shape our legislation? So Senator Harry Reid, who's now since retired, but at the time that I joined his office, I was following one science advisor. And I, I didn't know it when I joined, but at the time it was a long succession of science advisors that he asked to have on staff. Uh, not every senator, I guess, values the position of having a science advisor, but he definitely did. Uh, as Senate Majority Leader, the, that office sort of has to oversee all areas of policy, health, um, economics, banking, immigration, foreign relations, all that stuff. So essentially they need someone on staff who can think critically and get up to speed quickly on all of those different kinds of areas. And not all leadership offices like his specifically ask for a science advisor, but it is the case that a lot of these offices want folks that can be mini inter-office expert on whatever issues are pertinent to their responsibility. So as a Senate Majority Leader in leadership, he needed lots of different expertise on staff. Other congressional members might only have responsibilities for certain select committees. So. If they are on a banking committee and uh, finance and uh, immigration, for them, a lot of them feel like they definitely need folks who can speak to those areas intelligently and help them navigate those issues. But if they don't have a committee responsibility that touches on science, for instance, they may not prioritize having a science advisor on staff. So that's often why I think not everyone has a science advisor on staff. Other folks might feel like the advantage of having someone who can understand science is that science is not just limited to one issue area. It's actually something that informs lots of issue areas. You know, if you're on the banking committee, it might help to have someone on staff who understands how blockchain works, you know, where, or cryptocurrency. And, and these are things that aren't just, you know, at the heart of them financial constructions. They're, they're you know, computer science. Uh, challenges, their, their IT challenges. So should they have them on staff? Would it help make better policy? Uh, it couldn't hurt. In your own words, how would you describe what policy means for people whose lives or careers are organized around current science policy, um, but also for people whose lives don't necessarily involve issues relating to policy every single day? So as I see it, I mean, the definition of, of policy is any kinds of rules, regulations, decisions about what to fund, what not to fund, what to advocate and amplify, and what not to advocate and amplify, those are all different types of policies. I mean, 
the way I see it, we all interact with policies and policies that have been made in our daily lives. The seatbelt that you wear when you get in the car is a policy decision. The whether or not you are driving on the left side or the right side of the road is a policy decision. The door that you walk through into your office that has a handicap button that automatically opens the door is a policy decision. Uh, and we all interact with policy decisions, policy implications, implications every day. So policy is, is, is all, it's definitely all around us. Science policy is both, uh, it's sort of a two-way street. It's both policies for the advancement of science and the management of science. So policies like, you know, are we going to fund lung cancer? Are we going to fund um, HIV research? Are we going to fund a new uh, quantum, you know, at some, some sort of atomic machine? Are we going to fund muon detection research? Those are policies that inf inform science, definitely. But then you have science that informs policy. If you take something like Superstorm Sandy, right, that came up the coast a few years ago and flooded parts of New York and New Jersey, there was science and there were science advisors that went to the states of New York and the states of New Jersey and says, here's what the science is telling us about how, how severe the storm will be. This can inform your policy about whether or not to close off subways or close this or prepare for you know, what we see as an eventual catastrophic, uh, catastrophic event. And then, for instance, one state will choose one route and one state will hear the same scientific evidence and choose another route. Mm -hmm. So you have science that will inform policy decisions, but then at the same time you have the, the policies that help manage and regulate science. What changes would you like to see brought to how the legislative or executive branch contends with issues of science policy? If we all lived in a perfect world, we would be not only investigating what is the most effective science policy, but it would take on a, take on a larger role in the decision making. Not the primary role, but a larger role in decision making about policies and legislation. Uh, you know, so right now, in terms of how things like science policy are crafted, there's, there's economic considerations, there are social considerations, there are political considerations, there are scientific considerations. And there's not, I don't think, any one lever, but just the idea of, make, uh, of giving science a, a, a larger say in how those decisions are made. I think is going to is, is gonna is gonna inform and 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 influence better policy decisions down the road. Interesting. I'm also wondering how science can be used in value-based considerations when making policy. So, I mean, Alexa and I are each fellows of the Center for Science and the Common Good. So, what does the common good, hopefully as practiced through policy, represent to you, and how is this common good? constructed from values and goals of the federal government? So I guess I think of, I think of science as playing the role of how, in its purest form, science is the way that the human race explores its world and tries to make sense of it by gathering data, experimenting with different hypotheses, 
gathering those results, coming to a conclusion to inform the next round of ideas and hypotheses and going back and testing that again and again and again. That's science at its purest form. And I feel like just the pursuit of that will inform the values of a society, of a government. There are things that we know today that we didn't know 50 years ago because we gathered data, we tested hypotheses, we gathered results, we looked at our previous ideas in a new light uh, and informed the new way or a new way of thinking about how we value you know, individuality, privacy, uh, human dignity. The, the more information we had, it informed a lot of our values so that they evolved together. And, and I think in its purest form, that's the, the beauty of science is that it will, not only does it just give us facts and figures and now we know this versus that, but it helps us understand our world much better. And that world, a lot of it is, you know, the world that our society lives in and how we value each other, how we value collectivism versus individualism, whether or not it's right or wrong, at least now we have more information about all of these things. How can we continue this conversation in our own lives as constituents that are affected by policy that's made every day, as students and just generally as individuals? Um, I, I think the, one of the best ways to continue the conversation is to uh, stay informed. Uh, a lot of the information we get right now are very short segments, sound bites, headlines. Often headlines are misleading or only hold part of the story. Uh, and so I think one of the ways to continue it is to, is to keep, I guess, keep digging um, when, it, when, it, when it comes to uh, issues around science and science decisions or, or even decisions that you might say, why don't we know that yet? Or how could we know more about the subject? Well, Dr. Simon, thank you for joining us today.